If you hang around here enough, you're going to hear teaching about the unity of believers and the unity of God's church. Maybe you've wondered what it means to be unified as believers. What does it mean to be unified as a church? Does it mean that we all have to like and dislike the same things? Does it mean that we all have to feel the same way about each other? As in, you know, we have to have the same emotional feelings toward everyone in the church. Or, or does it mean that we all have to agree about every secondary doctrinal matter that even many faithful and, and godly people might differ on? Just what is church unity? And how important is it that God's church be unified? There are answers to those questions, and we find many of the answers to many of those questions in the text before us this morning. I want you to open your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as we return to our study in in this 17th chapter of John's Gospel, we pick up where we left off last week in verse 20. And I want to read to you verses 20 through 23. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from mine. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus is praying here, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So far here in his high priestly prayer, we've heard Jesus pray briefly for himself, Just those first few verses, Jesus prays very briefly for himself in what lie ahead. We know that he will very soon be taken and crucified. So he prays for himself. He says his time has come. We heard him pray briefly there for himself. And then he prays a more lengthy prayer for the 11 disciples. We've been looking at that more lengthy prayer for those 11 over the last couple of weeks or so. Also along the way, we've noted that What Jesus prays for the 11 disciples reveals the heart of God, reveals to all believers what he intercedes for on their behalf at the Father's right hand, even now, kind of gives us a glimpse of how Jesus intercedes on behalf of all believers, even now. And now as we arrive at verses 20 to 23, we see Jesus is is moving from praying for the, the 11 only to praying also for all who would become his followers, for all who would believe in him. And as you've likely already guessed, the topic of Jesus' prayer here is the unity of all who are his, the unity of the church. We'll hear it again in just a moment, but first remember we heard Jesus pray this back in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Go back and look at verse 9 for a moment. Jesus prays, I am praying for them. And we know he's praying about 
his disciples, and we know he's praying about believers here, because he says, I'm praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is praying here for the 11 disciples there uh, there in verse 9, and we're going to hear Jesus pray for the unity of believers in verse 21, but first in verse 20, we hear him kind of change gears a little bit, change in in who Jesus is praying for, and we learn here also in verse 20, the source for true unity. So listen to it again, verse 20. I do not ask for these only. Remember, verse 9, I'm praying for them, the 11. But then a shift here, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So not only is Jesus praying for the 11, but now he's also praying for all those who will believe on account of their faithful ministry. Specifically, Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through their word, or in other words, through their witness, through their obedience to God's word and to the teaching that Jesus gave them through the witness and teaching of the 11, the, the faithfulness to the, to the task that Jesus Christ is giving them. Now, what would be included in the witness of the 11? What would be included in their word? Their word or their witness would include not only their teaching of the gospel during their ministry, but it would also include their, their word or witness in the scriptures themselves, as we know, many of them penned many uh, many of the, the the books of the New Testament for us, and and they were they were moved along and inspired by the Holy Spirit in that authoring of these New Testament books. And so, because of their word, because of their living witness, and because of their written witness which God inspired them to put pen to paper and put word to paper, because of that faithfulness and because of their ministry, many would come to believe in Jesus Christ. Now we know, of course, that when Jesus is taken from the eleven at first, very soon here, we're going to see it in the text, but very soon the eleven, they split. They don't hang around. They, they run for fear. I mean, very soon they're going to, and we think, oh boy, you know, where, where are they? These, these really strong and, and faithful and, and spiritually mature disciples who've been walking with Christ. What happened? And we might think that all is lost, but all is not lost. All is not lost. Because even though very soon they all head in different directions when Jesus is taken from them, God works in them. And God is maturing them. And God is bringing them along. And they will come back to the task that Jesus has given them. And very soon we will see in their witness, in their ministry, and from the words they penned at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, much fruit from the disciples and the apostles' ministry. Just think of it. All who have trusted in Christ. Think of it. After the crucifixion of Christ, all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ after Christ's crucifixion, a result of the faithful ministry of the disciples and the apostles. So it's right here in verse 20 that we find the foundation for the unity of God's church. You need to think carefully about this. How is it 
God's church is to be unified. Here's the foundation. Here's the source of our unity. And here's the point. The unity of the church is found in obedience to the Word of God. If we don't obey God's Word as a church, we will not be a unified church. So Jesus prays in verse 20. Look at it again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And then in verse 21, that they may all be one. Where's the source of our unity? It's the witness. It's the word of the disciples. It's the very words of God in which they were they were compelled and moved along and inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen their faithful teaching, God's word. So Jesus points to the foundation of the unity of the church and the unity that's to be ours and the testimony and teaching of his disciples, the gospel, and then he prays that they would be unified by it. Unified by the word of God, by the gospel message, by the truths of scriptures. And this really is the most basic formula for the unity of the church. Think of it this way. The unity of believers exists when by the power of God and with the word of God as the foundation, the spiritual life of believers conforms to the instruction of God's word, each believer maturing in Christ's likeness, each with lives which declare the same gospel. We will be unified as a church as we mature in Christ-likeness together. You see, the first answer to this prayer, if you think about it, the first answer to this prayer came on the day of Pentecost when God united all believers to himself in the body of Christ, the church, and he gave them his spirit. But it's possible, even with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, it's possible with faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word, it's faithful even as we say we believe in God's Word, it's possible for us not to be unified. Obviously, it's possible for us to not be unified because Jesus prays that they would be unified and that we would be unified. You see, it's possible for, for us to not be unified. So note how Jesus prays that believers would follow the pattern of true unity seen between he and the Father. You can see it in verses 21 and 22 and 23. Look at verse 21. Here's the pattern. Here's the, you know, the source is the word of God, the teaching of God given to the disciples, passed on through the scriptures. Here's, here's the pattern. We see it in verse 21 when Jesus prays, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And then you hear it again in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. See, the pattern for true unity is seen between the Father and the Son. They're our perfect example of unity. We can look to God the Father and God the Son and see that's a wonderful and perfect pattern of unity. You see, the Father is unified in the Son, and the Son is unified in the Father. In fact, what we learn here is that the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. That's confusing, isn't it? 
And though it baffles our minds, this is a fundamental truth, a foundational truth of God's Word, that the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Son does the Father's works, while the Father works His works in the Son. Confused yet? I had to write it down, okay? So the two are one. The two are one, and yet they are distinct in their nature. So Jesus prays that this same unity be seen in believers, that they also may be in us. And he prays in verse 22 that they may be be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. You see, Jesus is praying that just as he and the Father are distinct in nature, though they're distinct in nature and work, and yet they are unified and they are one in purpose. And he prays that believers would be one in Him, unified in purpose with God the Father and with Christ, and yet still maintaining their own identity. Every one of us is different by God's design. And it's a good thing. I'm glad I can tell you apart. Right? It's good that we can tell each other apart. It's good that we have these many and varying gifts that God has blessed the church with. We, we have differing skills and, and taste and, and interest and backgrounds and upbringing and education, all kinds of things. That is a wonderful blessing to the church, believe it or not. We're all distinct. And yet, God's Word reminds us, Jesus reminds us in His prayer, we are to be unified in purpose. You see, as believers become one in Christ, yet still maintaining their own identity, they become one with each other. As we become one with Christ, and as God's Word becomes one with us, and and God does His work in us, like God works through the Son, we become one as a church, one with one another. You see, believers are distinct in identity, yet one in purpose and all under Christ. You see, we're to realize that, that we are to have one purpose as a church. One purpose is God's people. And as verse 21 points out, Christ indwells believers and the Father indwells Him. Have you ever thought about that? Christ indwells believers and the Father indwells the Son. So who's in you if you're a follower of Christ? Christ is in you. And God the Father is in you through Christ. So it's through Christ that the believer finds unity with the Father. We're to be about our Father's work, right? And Christ indwells us and God the Father indwells Him. And then we hear the purpose and the outcome of this true unity. Jesus prays in verse 21, revealing the purpose of the unity of believers, saying this, look at verse 21 again, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Praise Jesus. 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We also see it in verse 23. Look at verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Well, here's the grand purpose of our unity. Here's the grand purpose. Here's God's big idea for our unity. Here's what our unity as a church is to lead to. Do you see it? Our unity is to be the foundation of our outreach and evangelism to the world. Our unity is to be our foundation for our witness to the world. Our unity as a church is to make it here, here, I mean, just think of this. Our unity is to make it obvious to the world that God loves his children. Our unity as a church is to, is to shout to the world, Jesus loves me, this I know. Right? You see, believers who love one another are living proof of the Father's love. Living, breathing, walking, sometimes rejoicing, sometimes suffering. Living proof of the Father's love. They are living illustrations to the watching world of the Father's love. And we see here, specifically for believers, verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. You see, the purpose of the unity of the church in the world is so that the world will see the love of God for believers and see how precious God's love is toward His own. Those who are His, those whom He has given the Son and whom the Son has kept. With God using that demonstration of His love, here's the point, to bring unbelievers to the point where their hearts begin to melt and see, look how God loves His children. I want to be one of God's children. I want to experience that same love. You see, that's what God is doing with the unity of His church when it works, when there's unity. which obviously reminds us it's possible for us not to be unified. You see, it's possible to get it all wrong. You see, the opposite of unity is possible, which has the opposite effect of unity. There's disunity. Better known as when believers are quarreling, or fighting, or gossiping, or backstabbing. And when that happens, the world is repulsed as they should be. See, that's not Christianity. That's not God's love. Why would the unbelieving world want anything to do with that kind of Christianity? They wouldn't, and they shouldn't. What a powerful reminder. What a powerful challenge to us as a church. If we're going to be a church that is effectively reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, right? Then we've got to see, see to it 
we've got to see too this, this business of magnifying God, making clear his, his great love for his own, magnifying the glory of God, magnifying the love of God, and doing so by our unity, not diminishing God's glory and love by our disunity. We need to see how important that is, that we be unified as the body of Christ, as the church. In fact, that's just the kind of thing Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus about in Ephesians chapter 4. Just listen to verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians 4. When Paul writes, he's concerned for them, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, disunity in the church is not a new problem, is it? Paul was writing about it to the New Testament church. And those are God's words for us, aren't they? These are God's words for, for His church today. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's to be us. That's God's reminder to us in John's Gospel today. So does unity as a church mean we all have to have the same likes and dislikes? No. Does unity as a church mean we all have to have the same understanding on, on secondary doctrinal issues that some disagree on? No. Does it mean we have to have the same emotional feeling toward each other and every believer in the church? Do we have to feel the same way about everybody? <laughs> no. But unity does mean that we must seek to believe and obey the same gospel truth. That we must seek to believe and obey the same gospel truth that teaches us to love one another even as Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, sometimes love is going to be a choice. We're going to talk about that more tonight. We're going to come back to this idea tonight in our study because this is so important that we get this right. We'll see tonight, we're going to see four marks of true true spiritual unity. What, what unity looks like in a church. Four marks of it. But just to, to remind ourselves, it doesn't mean we all have to say the same things. It doesn't mean we all have to think the same things and wear the same things and like or dislike the same things. It doesn't even mean we have to actually feel the same way about each other, but it does mean we have to be centered on the gospel truth that Jesus gave himself for our sins. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And he gives himself as an example of how we're to love one another in the church. We're to be unified in that. 
And when we get that right, what a powerful, powerful illustration to the watching world of God's love for His children. And God intends to use that to draw sinners to Himself. He intends our unity as a church to be a powerful, sweet, savory aroma to unbelievers that that's God's love? I want that. Oh, that we would have that kind of unity in this community. That this world in which we live and work would see God's love in us and be drawn to it and be saved.